wasn't it? And a great vibe to it as well. Thank you, worship team. We're going to turn to the preaching of God's Word now, and we're going to conclude the service with with a a good set of worship, because this is my hope, my prayer, the message today, that I will serve you well by revealing Christ in this text, and that that would fuel our hearts to want to worship Him here at the end. And the text today is the letter to the church in Philadelphia, so you might want to be turning there, Revelations chapter 3. And as you do, you all enjoying the summer here, I hope. It's going quick, isn't it? It's hard to believe. And uh, I'm just loving it. You know, the nice warm weather, being able to go to the beach, keep your windows open all day. It's fantastic. One thing that's also great about summer is that summer is like the big blockbuster movie season, right? And every week there's these big movies that are being released that are just fantastic. They got huge transforming robots in them or superheroes or explosions, some big action flicks. And I love the summer for all the big blockbuster movies that come out, even though I don't get to go out and see a single one of them. But what summer does is it fills my queue up for the winter that then when these movies are released, I can watch them at home during the dull, dreary winter months. There's not much else to do at that time, right? And so I, I love that about summer. It's kind of paving the way for some enjoyment during the winter. Um, and of all the movies that are, that are released that I get to, get to watch eventually, the ones that are my favorite are the ones that have this kind of crazy plot twist or perspective change, usually right at the end of the movie. You know what I'm talking about. A recent movie that did this couple was, was Inception was one. Also this fantastic movie not many people have seen called The Prestige, which has this crazy plot twist at the end. Uh, but there's some more classic examples like Planet of the Apes, Empire Starks, Strikes Back from Star Wars has just like this big plot twist there. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan is well known for making movies that have these big crazy moves here like The Village or Unbreakable or of course the twist movie of all twists is The Sixth Sense if you've seen that movie. Shawshank Redemption is another example. Uh, maybe you've seen some of these movies and if you have you know what I'm talking about. You're watching this film and it's building towards a climax and all of a sudden like bam something happens and there's a revelation and everything changes and your whole perspective of the movie is just turned upside down. I love that. I love to experience that. I like to do that in real life too because I'm like a fairly competitive guy. I like strategy games and I like when I'm doing these things to subtly plot domination and the people who, who are playing with me, I like to let them feel like they've got a chance at it, right? And behind the scenes there, just in my mind, I'm quietly just positioning myself to totally massacre them. And then suddenly, like, I make my move, and it's like, bam! And people are like, what, what just happened? I never saw that coming, you jerk. I hate you. I'm not doing with this with you ever again. That's what my wife says. She's fairly competitive, and... Along with every time that happens, we're going to Pastor Gary right now for marital counseling. <laughs> See, I love to be surprised and to surprise people with a sudden change in perspective. It's kind of fun, isn't it? And that is really the purpose behind the letter to the church in Philadelphia. This letter ultimately aims to help people see the person and the work of Christ in a new and fresh way. Perhaps to see him in a way that they have forgotten. Because the burdens and the pressures of this life have blinded us to some amazing truth. And the letter to the church in Philadelphia stands out among the seven letters because it has a very different tone and a very different vibe than most of the other letters. This letter, the sixth letter, along with the second letter, the letter to the church in Smyrna, have some unique dynamics to them. There's no direct rebuke in these letters. 
All the other letters have a very, fairly convicting, you know, I have this against you element. All the other letters have a direct call to repentance for some spiritual or some moral failure within that church. Not so in Philadelphia. This is a letter of loving encouragement. There's not a single stinging rebuke at all here in this letter. And this letter also carries with it a tone of, real tone of compassion and affection. Whereas in the other letters, Jesus is pictured, he stands before, over the church as its righteous judge, evaluating what he sees. In the letter to the church in Philadelphia, we see Christ more as a sovereign and loving caretaker. It's the only letter where Jesus actually says, I love you to the church. And there is a tremendous grace and tenderness here, which is arguably stronger than any of the other letters. And Philadelphia means city of brotherly love, after all. At the time of the writing of this letter, the city in Philadelphia certainly wasn't one of the greatest cities in Asia Minor. In fact, it had faced some real challenges and tragedy. Philadelphia existed on a very active fault line that constantly produced a series of earthquakes and tremors that just always was destabilizing life in the city. This was like Southern California. And in AD 17, the Philadelphian church, the city of Philadelphia experienced a massive earthquake. This was the big one. It just totally leveled the city, completely devastated it, and changed people's lives in a moment. But the population in Philadelphia recovered, and the city was rebuilt, largely because it was in a, in a, in a critical location. Philadelphia set at a, at a strategic juncture between trade routes, and it was often called, called the gateway to the east because of all the commerce and such that flowed through the city. And there was a good deal of wealth, therefore, in Philadelphia. And at the time of the writing of this letter, Philadelphia was a fairly new, fairly modern, recently rebuilt city because of all the earthquake devastation. And it also had a lot of culture because of all the various things and cultures that passed through it because of the trade routes. There was a melting pot of, of culture here. Philadelphia was known for its festivals and for its many temples. In fact, it eventually became known as the Little Athens so Philadelphia it was a fairly well-to-do, modern, uh, commercial hub, full of culture, full of activity. And while it was a relatively happy and desirous place to live, there was always a hidden fear back in the, in the back of re- the resident's mind that someday another devastating earthquake was going to come and wipe out everything that they had worked so hard to build. And at that time, then, in a moment, their entire perspective could change through a dramatic tragedy. And here they're about to receive a perspective change from Jesus. The letter to the church in Philadelphia, it's essentially a loving letter of encouragement, whereas Jesus wants to remind them of some incredible truth, to bring all the circumstances of their life into a different perspective. And a perspective, I think, that brings such incredible hope and such encouragement. It is a perspective that I believe is one of the most powerful in the entire Bible. And here it is, that God has a sovereign and perfect care for his faithful people, even when they can't see it. God has a sovereign and perfect care for his faithful people, even when they can't see it. That is the primary theme in the letter to Philadelphia, and is a theme that I pray will richly encourage us today. And with that, let me just read the letter in its entirety. Would you look with me? Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, which says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. 
I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, you see Jesus' posture there in that letter? See how nice he is, kind of compared to some of the other letters? See how strong he is? The posture Jesus has towards the church makes sense when you consider what he has to say about them. This is a faithful bunch. This is a steadfast and obedient group of believers. Whereas all the, most of the other churches had major problems within them. Ephesus was totally lax in their affection for Christ. Thyatira was tolerating sin in their midst. Pergamum was embracing the pagan lifestyle. Sardis was failing to serve Christ and be a witness in their community. Philadelphia was a church that had it all together. They were genuinely pleasing to the Lord. We see this clearly in verse 8 when he says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Jesus says that they have kept his word, that they have not denied his name. They're obeying his teachings. They're remaining steadfast in their commitment to him. They're being faithful to Christ. They're sincere, devout believers here. Their their faithfulness is highlighted again in verse 10 when it says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. And so what's the picture of the Philadelphian church? The faithful, steadfast, devout people of God. They were following God's law. They had hearts of affection for him. They were working to serve Christ and to build up the church. We kind of get the picture here that the Philadelphian church was the model church. These two positive phrases that we see about them, the only evaluation that the church receives. There's no negative uh, evaluation to counteract the positive. Jesus doesn't contend with his church here. He just compliments it and leaves it at that. I don't know about you, but this is the kind of church I would want to be in, right? How about you? Is this the kind of church you want to be in? If you had to choose, all right, I've got to be a part of one of the seven churches in Revelation. I think you'd probably pick, you know, it's got to be Philadelphia, hands down. That's the church I would choose to be in. Right? Now, now we know that it can't be a perfect church, though. Right? It's still made up of people. And, and no person is perfect. And no fellowship, no church, no body of believers is perfect. They all have their warts and problems. And if we look carefully at the text here, we actually do discover a struggle in this church. There's something here that Jesus is identifying and helping them with. They're facing a challenge. It's not something that's overtly sinful. But it's a challenge nonetheless. And what is it? Well, one thing that runs through all of the letters is the theme of opposition. Every church is under some sort of pressure or adversity. There'd be pressure to conform to pagan culture, pressure from false teachers within the church, pressure from uh, just to compromise doctrine or morality because of outside pressure. There's also adversity in the form of suffering and persecution. We see this is particularly true for the church in Sardis. I'm sorry, the church in Smyrna. And this also seems true for the church in Philadelphia as well. Philadelphia is a church that is under some kind of persecution or adversity. Look again at verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. 
Jesus says. Here he's empathizing with them. And he's saying to them, I know that you feel somewhat weak and helpless. I know that there's a tide of pressure that's bearing down against you that's strong. I know that you're not incredibly influential in the city. I know that you've not yet taken Philadelphia for the gospel. I know that about you. I know that you feel like you have little power. Because of that, I know that you feel pressure. And amid that pressure, you've not denied my name. You've kept my word. Yes, there are challenges facing you, Philadelphia. Yes, there's pressure and adversity. Yes, you feel small and weak, don't you? There's truth to that. But I commend you for standing firm, for keeping my word, for not denying my name. And then he goes on in verse 9 to give insight in the type of pressure they're facing when he says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. It seems that the Philadelphian church is contending with Satan himself. It seems that they're fighting against this thing called the synagogue of Satan. Now, I can't think of a stronger adversary, can you? Do we have a greater enemy than the devil himself? Certainly not. And this church is in direct conflict with Satan, particularly with the synagogue of Satan. Now, what's that? It's the synagogue of Satan. Well, synagogue's a Jewish thing, right? Only Jews have synagogues. synagogues. And so it seems that Jesus here is talking about the local Jewish synagogue. Apparently, the local Jewish community was giving the Philadelphian church some fierce fierce opposition. The Jews in the synagogue were so against Jesus that He says they've basically aligned themselves with Satan. They've become the synagogue of Satan, he says. And and though we don't know the details, it's clear that the Philadelphian church was in strong and significant conflict with the Jewish synagogue of the city. They were contending with one another. And you can imagine how this then would have been so particularly painful for the Philadelphian believers. Surely many in the Philadelphian church were converted Jews. People who grew up worshiping the God of the Old Testament. But then they saw that what God had done through Christ. They saw that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, and they turned to him in genuine faith, along with certain, certainly many Gentiles as well. And so what you have here is Jewish Christians then facing strong opposition from their Jewish brethren. This was personal. This was familial. And I bet there were Jewish Christians in Philadelphia who had brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and Cousins, parents who were part of the local Jewish synagogue that was actively defaming the Philadelphian church and the Philadelphian believers. So strongly, in fact, that this synagogue's force of opposition was identified as being actively aligned with Satan. Now, that's some pressure. That's some adversity. So much for the city of Philadelphia being the city of brotherly love. And the Philadelphian church is bearing up under this pressure and on this persecution. And verse 10 affirms this again when it says, You have kept my word about patient endurance. They were enduring. They were enduring conflict, and pressure, adversity, persecution, family divisions over religious convictions, and all the hurt, pain, hardship that comes from that relational strife. And some of you here know that well. Your allegiance to Christ, to this church, causes pressure for you within your family or your friendships. Perhaps there's people that you love that shun you because of your faith. Because they think it's foolishness that you're believing a lie. And they scorn you because of that. Perhaps there's some people that you love that just can't believe that you attend this church, Bethel Church. 
There's some people in our community, some churches in our community, that think we're incredibly wayward, that we teach some terrible things. You know what I'm talking about. And some of you here are facing that kind of pressure. You're facing that kind of adversity. You're taking some heat. Thanksgiving dinner is uncomfortable because of that. And we all face pressures like the Philadelphian church face. We all at times feel small and weak and powerless and under assault from the people that we love. And just being honest with you, I've been facing some pressures of these kind of things in, in my life recently. For the past few months, I've been really, truly just going through a very challenging season here. This has been because of some pressures within my family. Not my immediate family, but my extended family. And there's a real breakdown of relationships that's going on right now. And I'm the firstborn, and also a pastor. And so some leadership has fallen to me in this to try to mediate and heal some of the pain and honestly hatred that is being expressed. This has been one of the most difficult trials for me to endure and to, and to lead in. It is hard just to see so many parts of your family just unravel like that. Some of you have been there, right? I've also been facing some pretty intense pressure in the community. As I've been giving some leadership to some of our efforts moving into Gary, we've met some resistance from some people who've questioned our motives, people who've tried to undermine the reputation of Bethel Church. There have been some unfair accusations, things posted on Facebook, things like, watch out for this church, they're just coming in to take all of our money, many other things like that, calling into question our character, our integrity, our motives, and I've been having to deal with that opposition in the community, confronting some people about that, feeling maligned myself, personally, in the process of that. That's been hard. It's been really hard, but that fight is worth it, isn't it? Also recently, I've been getting some pretty good feedback from some brothers around here, men who are just speaking some truth into my life, helping me become a better pastor. And when you get that constructive criticism, that hard, that's hard, isn't it? And so it's been a hard season for me, kind of bearing some of these burdens, and that's why preparing this message has been so encouraging to me because I've been in need of encouragement, just as the Philadelphian church was in need of encouragement, and how I bet all of us would benefit from some encouragement as well. And so Jesus gives it now to us, to them, in incredible abundance and amazement in this letter. And how does he do it? By enlarging their vision. By giving them a different perspective. Because what happens when we get under pressure? What, what is our tendency when things get tough? Our tendency is, is, is we just kind of zero in on the hardship, right? And the pain and the difficulty become central in our, our eyes. And, and particularly when that pain, that hardship is really acute, it becomes the only thing that we can focus on. It's the sole focus of, of our day. And sometimes we can see nothing else but that difficulty that we face. What happens is we kind of get these blinders on. And all we can see is straight ahead at that thing. Now, blinders are helpful in some contexts, right? We use blinders on horses. They help keep a horse from getting distracted, keeps him focused. I sometimes put the metaphorical blinders on when I need to just kind of zero in on a project and get something important done before a deadline. But blinders have real dangers too when they keep us from seeing the larger picture. When they produce within us a vision that is narrow and myopic, they're particularly dangerous when we face some hardship or point of suffering. We have a narrow and myopic vision about that. Because there's always a solution there's always hope for our hardship, but sometimes we fail to see it. Sometimes we fail to have the wider view, and we get so focused in on that one trial, and that makes us so discouraged and despondent and depressed, because all we can see is that hardship. 
Sometimes we miss the bigger picture of who God is and what he's doing through that hardship. This is the Philadelphian church. They need to see Christ beyond the blinders. They need to see the bigger picture of what God is doing and what he promises to do. And they need to see that God has a sovereign and perfect care for his faithful people. And Christ knows that wide-angle view of reality is what they need to carry them through. And he knows this perspective will give them great hope, great joy, great encouragement, no matter the trial that they face. And I wonder, does the Bethlehemian church sometimes need that wider view as well? Do we sometimes get the blinders on? And become so focused on the difficult thing, wallowing in our self-pity, that we fail to see the bigger picture of who Christ is and what he promises to us. Is that sometimes us? I think it is. I know I've faced that tendency myself even just recently. The letter to Philadelphia calls us to cast those blinders aside, and it does it by giving us a wonderful dramatic, glorious picture of Christ and his work and his promises to us that should result in nothing less than incredible hope, encouragement, and worship. So let me unpack where we see that now in this letter for you, working now verse by verse through the entire text. It's interesting, most of the other letters to the seven churches contain the phrase you, 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 that word over and over again. As the churches are critiqued and described. But this letter has very little use. Instead, what's mostly in the letter to Philadelphia are I's and me's, referring to Christ. There are twice as many I's and me's in this letter than any of the other letters, except for Thyatira. It's the decent second. In other words, more than any other letter, the letter to the church in Philadelphia is not about the Philadelphian church. It's about Christ. This is about the person of Christ, his promises, his work, especially amid people's hardships and suffering. And as with every letter, this one begins with a description of some key attributes of Christ that are central to this letter theme. And notice how Jesus is described here in verse 7. And to the angel in the church of Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. First, there's two key attributes of Jesus here. He is holy and he is true. Holiness means that he's morally pure. He's without error. There is no sin in him. And true means that he is propositionally pure. There's no falsehood in him. There are no lies. There's no confusion or conflict in what he says. There's no error in Christ's words or in his mind. So he is morally without error. He is intellectually without error. In other words, he is completely infallible in every conceivable way. There's no fault in him. You can't doubt him. You can't call into question anything that he says. He is absolutely, totally trustworthy, no matter your circumstance, burden, or limited perspective. And it is this fact that Jesus Christ is totally, completely infallible and trustworthy that everything else that follows in this letter is built. Because the text goes on to say, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. He has a key of David. In other words, he's the real king of the Jews. Even those Jews who oppress him, who are part of the synagogue of Satan, who say he's not their king, he's their king. He's the real Lord of the Jews. And he's the one who opens the doors that no one shuts. He's the one who shuts the doors that no one opens. In other words, he is sovereign. 
He's in complete and total control. He opens the doors he wants. He closes the doors he wants. Nothing is outside of his control. Even as the Philadelphian church is facing pressure and adversity and hardship, Jesus is saying, I've got that. I'm in control of that. And you know what? My control is perfect. Because I'm the infallible Lord. I'm holy, I'm true, and I'm in control. Trust me. That's what he's saying. And you know what? Whatever door I want to open, it's going to open. Whatever door I want to shut, it's going to shut. Nothing can stand against me in that. That's why he goes on in verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. In other words, no one can stop me. There is no one who is a challenge to my authority. There is no one who is a challenge to my control. You know those hard things you're facing? You know those trials that you've got? I'm opening a door for you that not even the entire forces of Satan can come against that and shut. It cannot come against me in that. I am the infallible, sovereign, unstoppable Lord. I'm perfect. I'm right. I'm in control. Nothing is a challenge for me. I've got this. Trust me, he says. Now, is that a helpful perspective for us? I bet it is. Especially when times are tough. Sometimes feel like life is spiraling out of control. Jesus is saying here, I've got it. He's saying to you, I've got you. My precious and dear child. You feel weighed down in life? I got you. Nothing can possibly ever have victory over me in that. Is that encouraging, church? You bet it is. You face hardship. Take, take the blinders off. Realize that Christ is in perfect and unstoppable control of your circumstances. And that perspective will help carry you through. But it gets better. Look again at verse 9 and 10. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come down, come and Bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, there's a lot here. And I want to zero in on two phrases first, and then we'll unpack the other stuff. Two key phrases. There's first a, a statement of accomplishment, and then there's a statement of promise. Statement of accomplishment and promise. The statement of accomplishment is found in the middle of verse 9 when he says, I have loved you. I have loved you. And then he says, in the middle of verse 10, the statement of promise, I will keep you. I have loved you, and I will keep you. Two beautiful phrases, which are really just a picture of the gospel right there. I have loved you. That's the cross. Right there. That's God's salvific and adoptive love for his people right there. Jesus is reminding them, I've loved you on Calvary. I died for you. Don't forget that. In this trial, don't forget that I have loved you with the greatest love and the greatest sacrifice that this world has ever known. He's saying, do you feel unloved, church? Do you feel under assault? feel some pressures coming at you from people in your family or co-workers or people in your community? feel unloved? You know what? I love you. I've demonstrated that love for you. I died for you. Don't let the blinders of your hurt cause you to forget that. And this love has been demonstrated in the past, but it is an ongoing commitment I have for the present and for the future because just as I have loved you, in verse 10 he says, I will keep you. I will not let you go. I've got you. 
got you in this. I know you're ugly at times. I know you sin. I know you have your warts. I still love you. I'm caring for you. I'm keeping you. You're mine. No one can ever change that. No one can take you away from me. Because I am the infallible, sovereign, and unstoppable Lord. But I am also Jesus, your Savior. Who is loving, caring, and gracious to you. Even if sometimes you can't see it. Jesus is our loving, caring, and gracious Savior. And how easy it is to forget that when we get the blinders on. Sometimes we feel abandoned by him in those moments. But it's not true, not true in the least. Jesus is reminding his church here, you are mine. I love you. I will never let you go. Don't lose that perspective. So Bethel, do you see clearly now the main theme that's built into this letter that God has a sovereign and perfect care for his faithful people, even when they can't see it? You believe that? You believe that God is in control, perfect control, wise control, benevolent control, gracious, patient, loving control, unstoppable and unchallengeable control. Even when we can't see it, it's true. And that's what Christ wants us to see here in this letter. His control and sovereignty over all our circumstances of life in the present, but also in the future. Because there's another aspect of Jesus and his person and his work that is brought out so wonderfully, beautifully in this text. Jesus is not just the infallible, sovereign, and unstoppable Lord. He's not just the loving, caring, and gracious Savior. He is also the conquering, vindicating, and rewarding King. So much of this letter are promises of what Christ will do for his people in the future. First, he conquers his enemies. Look again, verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not the lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. He's saying those people who are coming against you, don't worry. I got that. They are beaten. Satan is defeated. Those people are fighting against you. I'm going to make them come and bow down before you. They will be conquered because in the end I win. Or look again at verse 10. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Jesus is saying that a judgment is coming. Judgment will fall over the entire world. This is one of these verses right here. These verses of Revelation that's so heavily contested. So what does it mean? Is it talking about the rapture? Is it talking about the great tribulation? Is it talking about a soon-to-occur outbreak of persecution for the first century church? Many other different views. I'm not going to get into all the different theories here because we can speculate about them all day long. And in the end, we really can't know for sure. But what we do know is that Christ will judge the earth. He will conquer his enemies. He will tw- try those who dwell on the earth because, verse 11, I am coming soon. I'm coming for my bride. I'm coming for my church. And in my coming, I'm going to make war against your enemies. They will be defeated. I am unstoppable in that. And I have, I have conquered and I will conquer anyone who dares to stand against me, whether that be Satan or wicked people or even death itself. Look out, church. I'm coming for you. Jesus is our, he's our conquering king. And that is an essential, essential perspective for us to have, especially if we feel like the enemy is winning. Jesus' point here is to remind us that he is not winning. He can't win. Jesus wins. And there is nothing anyone or anything can do about that. Jesus says to the church, don't forget that perspective. Don't forget this amazing truth I'm telling to you. 
What's so amazing about it is not, he just doesn't come to conquer. He also vindicates. Look again in verse 9. I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. Jesus says these enemies, they will be conquered. And then they will come and bow down before you. Not before me. They're going to bow down before you, church. How crazy is that? I thought every knee bows to Jesus. Our, our, Our enemies will someday bow down before us. Seems to be what the text is saying here. That wicked people in the world who stand against God's people, people who stand against the cause of Christ, someday they're going to see that they were wrong. Someday these Jews who are are standing against God's people saying, you're not God's people, we're God's people. They're going to be shown that they were wrong. And all the slander they heaped on God's people, all the persecution and all the mistreatment, Someday they're going to see they were wrong. Someday they're going to see that the church was right. They're going to see that God Almighty sides with the church. They're going to see that Jesus loves and stands by his church. And those enemies then are going to fall on their knees before the church. And they're going to say, you were right. We were wrong. And the church will be vindicated in the eyes of all. And friends, no matter what opposition we face, a day of reckoning is coming. And if you face injustice in this life, there is a day when you will be justified. There is a day when the enemies of God's people will see that they were wrong. And all the mistreatment, false accusations, slander, persecution, even martyrdom of God's people, someday the the enemies of God who did that, they're going to realize someday soon they were were wrong. And that's going to be a very sad day for them. But it's going to be a vindicating day for us. So keep that perspective, Jesus says. I'm going to vindicate you. You don't have to worry about vindicating yourself. When you feel mistreated, maligned, you don't have to justify yourself. Someday soon, I'm going to do that for you. I got you. And someday soon, everybody's going to see that. The record will be set straight. And uh, friends, you or I, we won't have to do anything to make that happen. Christ will do it all. And he will receive all the glory because of it. Jesus is our king who conquers our enemies. He will vindicate us in their sight, but he is also our rewarding king who will reward his faithful people with incredible blessings and treasures. Look again in verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. There's some wonderful and beautiful blessings described here, wonderful rewards that await God's people. First, God's faithful people are made into pillars in the temple of God. These aren't literal pillars, of course. These are metaphorical pillars. But a pillar is a permanent, pretty much a permanent thing, isn't it? I mean, you build a house, build a building with pillars. Those pillars are going to stand for as long as the building endures, right? How long will the house of God exist? Forever. Jesus is saying that his people are permanently part of his household. He's saying just as a pillar lasts, as long as the building lasts, he's saying that People who are part of my household will remain there forever. That is why he says here again, I will make 
him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. That's a great reward, isn't it? To be brought into the household of God forever. Who wouldn't want that? What tremendous reward awaits God's people. This would have been particularly encouraging to the Philadelphian church. They were used to pillars falling over. And buildings crumbling after all. Because of all the earthquakes. But here are some pillars that will never fail. Even life that is so uncertain and so unstable at times with sudden changes and tragedies and trials. One of the rewards of being Christ's own is a future of incredible stability and permanence and promise. You look forward to that day. You don't have to wake up and worry about what's going to happen. That's the promise. That's a reward that is promised to God's people to be permanently secure in his home. Then reading on, we see this, never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. There's a lot of emphasis on identity here. The word name is mentioned three times. The name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the name of myself. Three different names are in view. The name of God, the father, the name of God's city, Jerusalem, and also the name of Jesus. And what's happening with these names? They're being written, branded really, inscribed into the people of God. The people of God are being permanently identified as belonging to God, as citizens of his city, as having a special connection to Christ. And those are some precious, encouraging rewards, aren't they? That if you are in Christ, you are forever God's child. And if you are in Christ, you are forever destined to be a citizen of the new heavens and the new earth. If you are in Christ, you will forever and permanently enjoy a genuine connection to the one who is infallible and sovereign and unstoppable and conquering and vindicating and rewarding and loving and caring and gracious. Our King Jesus rewards and blesses his faithful people in so many ways, most particularly with himself. And those rewards, they're permanent. They can never be taken away. We can never cast them aside ourselves, even if we would want to. We've been branded his own. We've been made a pillar in his household for all of eternity. Great blessings await the children of the absolutely sovereign and caring king. You are mine, Jesus says. I've got you. I've got you for all of eternity. This is Jesus, our Lord, Savior, our King, who's matchless in his glories. And Christ exhorts us in this letter to keep that perspective so that we see clearly all of who he is and all of his promises. And in that perspective, find incredible hope and encouragement no matter the trials that we face. And finally, Jesus has one exhortation to the church. Just one, which I've skipped over, want to come back to now. He said, look again at verse 11. Where he says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have. So that no one may seize your crown. Jesus is coming back, which is another great reward, isn't it? And he's bringing a crown of acknowledgement to his faithful people. That's another tremendous reward. But until he does, the church is told, hold fast to what you have. In other words, persevere. Stay true to what you have. And here we see the responsibility that Jesus gives to the church. They're to hold fast to some things. And from the context, we can discern those two things really fall into two broad categories. First, they must hold fast to their obedience and righteousness. 
Remember how the Philadelphian church was so commended for this, for their patient endurance, their faithfulness to God's name. And twice the text says they have kept his word. They've remained faithful to his teaching. They've remained obedient. They've remained righteous. They have held fast to God's word. They've held fast to Christ himself. And Jesus is saying, keep doing that. Despite all that you're going through, keep holding on to my word. Keep living a holy and righteous life. Fight the good fight until I return. I also think there's something else here that you need to hold fast to. They're hold fast to Christ's promises, no matter their circumstances. After all, that's what this letter's all about, isn't it? Keeping in perspective that God has a sovereign and perfect care for his faithful people, even when they can't see it. Even when we get the spiritual blinders on. Because we get so focused on something else. Perhaps it's a hurt, some struggle. And in those seasons, we need to do everything we can to cast those blinders aside. Have a wide-angle view. And see things from the expanse of eternity. That in the end, Christ wins. And that no matter what we face, Jesus is there saying, I've got you. Let's never lose sight of that. Our infallible, sovereign, and unstoppable Lord. It was also our loving, caring, and gracious Savior. And our conquering, vindicating, rewarding King. This is Jesus. And this is who we are. As his people. Keep that perspective. And then we can hold fast to God's word and his righteousness. No matter what the world throws at us. I'm coming soon, Jesus says. Verse 11. I'm coming. I'm coming soon. May our hearts echo that that we see in the words that conclude the entire book of Revelation. It says, Amen. Yes. Come, Lord Jesus. Come soon. And come fast. Till then, we know that you got us. And oh, how we, how we need and want you. Let's pray.